For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a report on a transgender woman who is being held in an all-male immigration detention center. Meet two residents of Southern Arizona who had life-changing experiences in the Peace Corps. I'll talk with musician Suzanne Vega about where she started and where her songs have taken her. And film writer Krista Scheel looks ahead to this weekend's Academy Awards. Those stories are coming up next on Arizona Spotlight. A 24-year-old transgender woman has been held with the male population at the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Detention Center in Florence since October. The Guatemalan migrant turned herself in at the border port of entry, asking for asylum in the U.S., saying that because of her gender identification, she had been the victim of discrimination and abuse. Community organizers have been rallying behind Nicole Hernandez Polanco and asking for her release. I'm here with Fernanda Echavarri, who's been covering the story. Um, will you tell us what we know about what Nicole says is happening at that detention center? Well, Mark, a local group called Mariposas Sin Fronteras, which is Spanish for Butterflies Without Borders, is alleging that Nicole, who identifies as a transgender woman, has been a victim of physical and verbal abuse, both from male detainees and also from guards and staff at the detention center, which is an all-male facility in Florence, although a spokeswoman with Immigration and Customs Enforcement uses the female pronoun in her emails um, when, when she and I write back and forth about this case. Nicole is seeking asylum in the U.S., so because of that, activists are saying that she's not a flight risk and that she should be released and wait for her immigration court hearing outside of a detention center. However, Nicole had been ca- crossing the border illegally twice as a teenager, so she does have a record with immigration officials. Are we going to be able to hear directly from Nicole in this story? Unfortunately, Mark, we won't. I put in a request with Immigration and Customs Enforcement on January 20th asking to interview Nicole inside the detention center. As of last week, they had not facilitated the interview. So what I did was I got in touch with Raul Alcaraz Ochoa. He's a community organizer, immigrant rights activist, and LGBTQ rights activist also here in town. He's the force behind the effort to release Nicole. Um, Raul visits with her often at the detention center in Florence, so I went to Florence with Raul. Are we here? This is it? Yeah. This is Florence Detention Center. So what can you take in with you? Are you leaving everything in the car? Yeah, I'll leave everything inside except my ID. So you'll go Because I had not been given permission to interview Nicole, Raul went inside the facility alone, and we talked after he came out and during the drive back to Tucson. Hello. So how did it go? Nicole uh, mentioned being feeling sad and uh, for not having her freedom uh, and for the inhumane treatment that she has been receiving. Um, but at the same time, she she says she has finds a lot of inner strength and is very hopeful that that she'll be released soon. And she was today. She was kind of focusing more on what her life plans are and what she wants to do for her future and wanting to get an education and eventually use what she learns uh, to be able to help other transgender women like herself uh, to supporting their, advocating for their rights. 
Um, you said you hadn't seen her in a couple of weeks. What has changed in the last couple of weeks? What did she say has changed? Is anything different? I believe uh, with the p campaign having gone so public and so national, uh, the conditions uh, in her detention have been such that there has been uh, from staff here at the ICE facility less interaction with with Nicole uh, while at the same time being monitored even more closely and uh, when she when Nicole questioned ICE why she was being placed under so much surveillance and monitoring uh, they said it was for her protection which Nicole asked well then why wasn't this a concern from day one and physically how did she look as far as clothing and showering and food is 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 that something that's being handled from her point of view and yours in the way that it should or are there any complaints in that area in the detention center so uh, Nicole is a very beautiful young woman she uh, has a medium-sized long black hair uh, very beautiful shining hair she wears a blue uniform uh, in the past has talked about and currently her discomfort with showering because uh, the the showers are basically with other men and so that creates a discomfort because she she's her body is exposed as a transgender woman and uh, feeling uh, really vulnerable to getting looks from other people there other people doing any kind of like sexual assault uh, that's always a risk that she faces when showering and in fact she told me she had requested that she be given a time where only she can shower and nobody can get close but they uh, the staff at the facility refused what response do you have to people who would say why should the government do any kind of special treatment for for people who are considered to have committed a crime by entering the country illegally. So what is your response and her response to, to some of that criticism? Mm -hmm. uh, on paper, ICE states that it provides a safe environment for people to be housed and detained in. Uh, for Nicole, that is not a reality and for uh, other people that are transgender and that are in immigration detention, they face so many challenges and so many types of violence and assault that are just horrifying. So that's why for us, uh, the solution is for Nicole to be released and for uh, the conditions to, to change so that when people are placed there that they're not re-traumatizing uh, transgender people and other uh, LGBTQ groups. That was Arizona Public Media's Fernanda Echavarri speaking with activist Raul Alcaraz Ochoa on the drive back from the Immigration Detention Center in Florence. Fernanda, can you tell us what federal officials are saying about this particular case? Well, Mark, I asked for an interview with Immigration and Customs Enforcement representatives so that they could address some of the allegations of abuse against them, but I did not get a, that interview either. Um, what I did get was an email with 
the same statement that was sent to any reporter asking for an interview. And I'll read you some of what that statement says. It says, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement is firmly committed to providing for the safety and welfare of all those in its custody. ICE has a strict zero tolerance policy for any kind of abuse or inappropriate behavior in its facilities and takes any allegations of such mistreatment very seriously. Also in the statement, the spokeswoman wrote, ICE has issued formal guidance to address the care and housing of vulnerable and special needs detainees. That was from the email that I received from ICE. And I should mention, Mark, that the agency is now allowing members of the media inside the detention center to interview Nicole, but not until March 6th. So, of course, we put in a request to do an interview that day and should have an update on her story after we visit. We'll look forward to hearing an update from you on this story. Fernanda, thank you for bringing it to us. Thank you, Mark. President John F. Kennedy founded the Peace Corps in 1961. Since then, more than 200,000 Americans have been involved in volunteer service projects in dozens of countries. A new wave of volunteers from diverse backgrounds begins this memorable experience every year. The Peace Corps will be holding an informational event in Tucson next week. Tony Paniagua has an interview with a pair of RPCVs. That's Returned Peace Corps Volunteers. Anna Steves Reese and Renata Schultz, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So Anna spent uh, three years in Nicaragua, 2011 to 2014. However, Renata, you've been to three different countries as part of the Peace Corps. What would you like to tell us about your experiences? I was in Nigeria from 1963 to 65, then in Mali after retirement from the University of Arizona from 2011 to 12, where I was evacuated because of the political uh, troubles there. And then I was in Mexico from uh, 2013 to 2014. You wrote a book about your experiences in Mali. Correct. Life Mm -hmm. in Alien Territory. How did that come about? Uh, What the book uh, consists of is really the messages uh, that I sent home to friends and family recording my very at-the-moment experiences as I lived them uh, in Mali, which is, of course, quite a different culture from that in the United States and even from the culture that you experienced in Central America. And Renata, for the people who may not be familiar, Mali is in Western Africa, Northwestern Africa. How different was it from your life here in Arizona? Well, I mean, first of all, Mali is a predominant Muslim country, which, of course, is quite different from here. And Mali is definitely a developing country. It is among the poorest countries uh, uh, in the world, uh, not just in Africa, but in the world. And uh, the daily life is quite different from here. Uh, My professional life was quite different from here. When you come with the expectations from an American post-secondary institution to Mali, you have great surprises. You were able to deal with these surprises despite the fact that you were not, quote, the typical age for somebody in the Peace Corps. How old were you when you joined and when you went to Mali, and how did that have an impact on your life? I was 71 years old, and I was the oldest Peace Corps volunteer in Mali. Uh, The great advantage that it did have was um, that uh, in most Muslim culture, and particularly in Mali, age is revered and uh, honored. And I had plenty of help and I had plenty of respect and really no negative experiences in terms of personal encounters uh, there. 
But the physical challenges were significant, as I read in your book. They were significant, yes. I mean, you know, if you do need your television and if you do need your hot water and if you do need your stove, uh, electric stove, then probably you should not select Mali. Okay, and what would you like to say, Anna, about your experiences in Nicaragua and why you feel so, uh, maybe this is not the exact word, blessed that you were able to participate in that country? Yeah, so I was a maternal child um, health volunteer, and I worked in a rural community. I did a lot of work with community health workers, um, health education promotion. It was a phenomenal experience. I can't wait to go back. I think that for most volunteers, we go for many reasons. A lot of it is for the professional experience. We think we're going to remember the projects that we did, but what, and I think that we can all speak to this. It's the relationships that we take away that stick with us, both with other Peace Corps volunteers, because it's such a life-changing experience. You maintain those friendships throughout the rest of your life. And I'm going to be going back next summer, I'm sure, and visiting my host family. And I still Skype with them all the time. So it's nice with the technology we have now to be able to continue that communication and friendship, which is two of our main goals in Peace Corps is continued friendship between countries and cultures. So what would you like to tell people who are interested in possibly joining the Peace Corps? Well, if you're interested at all, this is the week to get more information, or next week, rather. Um, it's one week before Peace Corps week. We're selling it, celebrating it a bit early at U of A because of midterms. Um, I mean, I think the main thing is the impact that can have professionally um, after undergraduate degree. Everything that you're doing now as an undergraduate or things that you've done professionally, you can apply to your work in the Peace Corps, experience a different part of the world, defer your student loans, um, and also have many graduate opportunities when you return. On Tuesday the 24th, Wednesday the 25th, and on Friday the 27th, there's going to be different opportunities for people to learn about the Peace Corps. Just talk to us about each one of them briefly, if you will, please. Yeah, so um, as the recruiter at University of Arizona, I definitely want to encourage anyone in Tucson to come visit me as well. It's not just for students at U of A. Um, so the first event on the 24th, which is also my birthday, so please come, um, is going to be an information session um, just about, in general, like what Peace Corps is all about. Um, a panel of return volunteers will be sharing their experiences. That's going to be the 24th in the Agave Room of the Student Union at U of A. And then the 25th, we're going to have a percentage night for the Fellows Program at Borderlands Brewing Company. And the 27th is the culminating event on Friday from 11 to 2. And that is going to be in the ballroom at the Student Union. And it's going to be a lot of fun. So... A lot of countries represented and music and um, great informational opportunity. And then finally, Renate, what about you moving forward? So you've been to Nigeria as part of the Peace Corps, Mali as part of the Peace Corps, Mexico. What has kept you going? Why do you keep going back? Uh, it is a greatly enriching experience. Uh, it was the most formative experience of my youth when I was in Nigeria. And I thought after retirement, uh, you know, I would try it again and again. And I learned more about myself. And as you say, you know, you make friendships, you learn about, you learn about other cultures, you learn about other lifestyles and get your own life in perspective. Renate Schultz, a PhD in foreign language education, and Anna Steves Reese, the Peace Corps recruiter here at the University of Arizona. Thank you very much for joining us, and good luck to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. You can find information and see pictures from their Peace Corps experiences on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Suzanne Vega knew early that she wanted to tell stories through song. Her first album picked up where folk music seemed to have left off in the mid-80s, 
and her cool, quiet touch has been earning her crossover appeal ever since. I talked with Suzanne Vega about her new album, her first in seven years, starting with a look back at how her career started. My heart is full today for the recently departed of sorrow and of sympathy to that land uncharted. Um, 86 was actually great. It was a great year for me because the first album was so much more successful than anyone had thought it was going to be. And it wasn't the stress and the pressure of the years that came later. Um, where I was playing 2,000-seat venues and uh, people were expecting a bigger sort of show. Um, that was a great year. It was I was still playing small venues and telling stories and selling out the venues, which was very satisfying. When you uh, say telling stories, what do you mean comparing that to what you do today? Oh, I still do very much the same thing. Um, I still try to talk a bit about what the songs are about on stage, because I think that the songs in and of themselves are are kind of mysterious. You don't always know what the song is about. And so I'll try to give a little backstory, which is harder to do in a bigger venue just because you have to speak more slowly and you're, I'm not always sure that uh, that I'm heard in a, in a bigger venue. Spin Magazine had come out uh, right around that time or a year or two before. And that was where I, as a young music listener, remember seeing photographs of your album and reading a review that got me curious. And uh, I've always been thankful that I bought that album because I think you helped open me up to the power of singer-songwriters, which up to that point I think I had been entranced by bands. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I can understand that. Uh, I didn't realize it back then, but the the idea of singer-songwriters seems to go in and out of style um, here in America anyway. I mean, I had never thought that uh, that the phrase singer-songwriter could be out of style, but I think it had been for a while um, by the mid-'80s. So so I, I, I kind of understand that. Um, you seem so great. To... <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you, you seem to have made a decision very early in your life to be a singer-songwriter and to be a musician. Was that a, an easy decision for you to make? Uh, yes and no. Yes, it was because it's one of the types of music that I've always loved. I've always loved poetry, and I loved songs that were poetic, and uh, I loved Bob Dylan. I loved Laura Nero, and that, to me, was just one of the most natural things a person could choose to be. Also, I didn't and don't read music, so it was easy for me to take my guitar alone into my room and invent stories and characters and um, that was a lot easier for me than trying to have a band. Um, I also love pop music. I love jazz. I love Motown. But the singer-songwriter thing was something I could do alone, and that was important to me as a as a young girl growing up in New York City where we don't have garages and we don't have places where you can go practice, really, with, with a band. Uh, it made more sense economically also for me. Did you have uh, parental support in making these choices? Yeah, my stepfather, who raised me, played the uh, nylon string acoustic guitar. He had written a song uh, when I was younger about my younger brother, and so that influenced me. My parents were pretty supportive of anything I wanted to do, especially if it was in the arts. Um, and I did. I, I was also studying to be a dancer at that time. So, um, so I, had, I had options, but most of them were wanting to be something in the arts. 
Your public persona is really someone of, of an artist with patience, I think. I mean, you come across as someone who who bides her time and chooses her projects carefully. Um, does patience come easily to you? And do you, do you even think that's an accurate <laughs> portrait of you? Um, probably, yeah. I think I think I am patient, uh, uh, probably because I myself am and I'm actually very slow. Um, I remember how impatient I felt when I was working on my very first song. I started to try to write songs when I was 11, and it took me three years to finish that first one. So you can imagine, you know, at the age of 11, to have to wait three years to really get a song down that I was happy with, um, that was like an eternity. Uh, but everything about my career and and my life, to be honest, has been that way. Slow, uh, (laughs) even though once I became popular, it seemed as though it happened overnight. I'd actually been uh, trying to get a record deal for eight years by the time I actually got it in 1984. So yes, I think uh, it's really more tenacity than patience. I I feel impatient often, but I, I really, really stick to it. Do you have a, any stories about a time when you've been out in public and your music has come back to you in an unexpected way? Oh, all the time. Mostly Tom's Diner. Um, you know, I'll, I'll be uh, on a train or something and hear someone sing it or hum it. Or um, I, I don't think it's because they see me and recognize me. That almost never happens. Um, it's usually just that it's, it's in the air or it's been sampled, you know, people walking down the street just singing, da, 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 you know, uh, <laughs> it just, it's in the air. <laughs> Do you ever feel like sometimes you're secretly famous? <laughs> uh, yeah, kind of, although I, I used to feel that way also before I actually was. Um, <laughs> I, I always felt that I have a, a kind of story going on that, that other people don't know. You know, it's a, it's the narrative. It's a narr- there's a narrative of my life going on that's not uh, publicized. Suzanne Vega takes the stage at the Fox Tucson Theater this Sunday evening. There's more of our conversation on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. On Sunday, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences will present the 87th Annual Academy Awards Show, an event that's both loved and hated by movie fans. Some find its glamour and the earnest celebration of cinema history to be must-see TV. Others might say those trappings only mask the awards' roots as a popularity contest, subservient to fads and Hollywood social politics. Film writer Chris DeShiele offers his take on what the Academy Awards mean to him. My problem with the Academy Awards is that the immense prestige associated with them is undeserved. I talked about that last year on Spotlight, so I'll leave it at that. But what about the show itself, the annual Oscars presentation? Almost every year I vow not to watch it, but I usually break that promise. Sure, it's fun to get together with friends to make fun of the clothes, the gaffes and tastelessness, the pretentious feeling of it all. That's definitely part of it, but not all. Starting as a rather small and intimate gathering, by the end of the 30s, the Oscars had become a major production. Of course, it wasn't until television came along that they really took off, and I think the star system is the main reason. A big part of the appeal of Hollywood stars was that movie fans would identify with them, project their own feelings onto them. If you really loved a particular star, then the excitement of the Oscars would be in rooting for your favorite to win. 
Plus, it was a chance to see the stars in their natural habitat, so to speak, outside of a film. The whole star-based popular culture just got bigger and bigger over the years, and now, of course, it's huge. Not so coincidentally, the award shows for film and TV have multiplied as well. The Golden Globes, the People's Choice, the Screen Actors Guild, and many more. Most of them are televised, too, so we're saturated with these shows to the point where it just seems ridiculous for there to be so many of them. The Oscars are like the finale of these fireworks, and I know some people who hardly go to the movies at all, but still enter an office Oscar pool trying to predict the winners. The red carpet, which started as a way for fans to applaud for their favorite stars arriving at the show, is now a ritual in which the actors, particularly the actresses, get interviewed briefly and show off their glamorous outfits. The show itself has a host who tells jokes, celebrity presenters, performances of nominated songs, and various tribute clips and montages. Every year they try to entertain us, but the trouble is, in that respect, it's usually pretty dull. The routines and lines from the presenters are awkward and unfunny more often than not. And throughout the night, all the self-congratulatory rhetoric about how wonderful and magical and inspiring movies are gets laid on really thick. What the producers don't seem to understand is that really all we want to see is the people getting their awards. Instead of cutting them off with music, for instance, because they think the show's too long, they should just let them talk. I remember the year Martin Landau won for Best Supporting Actor after a lifetime of unappreciated work, and the music started playing before he'd barely gotten started. No, no, stop, he cried. I agree, they should stop. To make matters worse, in recent years, they've banished the honorary awards for veteran stars and filmmakers to a different night that's not televised, eliminating any sense of Hollywood tradition. Yet they do find the time to show us Mark Wahlberg talking to a teddy bear. I get it, they want to attract younger viewers, but in the process, they're demonstrating how little they really care about movies. Well, after having said all that, I still have to admit I'll be watching, because a secret part of me still likes to gawk at movie stars and wants to see Julianne Moore win for Best Actress, which I'm predicting she will, along with Eddie Redmayne for Actor and Birdman for Best Film. Please don't quote me, unless it turns out I was right. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Krista Scheel. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. Production assistance by Caitlin Dean. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.